Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Well, it's uh, with great pleasure I want to introduce David Stroud to you. We first met a long time ago. I was a student and Dave was a young church planter, older than me, but young church planter. And um, uh, Dave <coughs> and his wife, Philippa, uh, three fantastic uh, kids, um, have had a massive influence on my life, on Pip's life, and um, really have shaped so much of what we value in terms of um, how to build a family, uh, how to build the local church and have a passion for mission. Um, and uh, David says that he, he's not actually preaching very much outside of Christchurch in, in London this year, so it's a real privilege to have him. And I know for many of you it'll be the first time you're um, hearing from Dave, but uh, really, really can't um, uh, recommend recommend him enough to you. So I really do want you to open your hearts to him and what he's going to uh, do amongst us over the next few days. And it'd be great if you can just sort of give him a very warm welcome as he comes up. Hi, everyone. Well, really nice to meet you. Heard lots about you all. And uh, it feels like home from home already. As Matt said, of course, we've known each other for years, and uh, which I guess is partly, and we worked out a lot of what we believe about life, God, and ministry together. We weren't aware, we weren't smart enough to work out that we were working it out, but that's what we were doing. And uh, so I think you'll find a lot of the themes that I will have to share won't be new to you. Uh, my son, who's now at university, was in Leeds recently on a, for a fencing competition, and Matt and Pip kindly said that he could come and stay. So he called me when he got back to uni. He said, Dad, he said, Matt is just like you. <laughs> he said he wears the same clothes, he drives the car that we used to drive, and he's even got the same books on his bookshelf. So um, I hope there'll be something original we'll both have to say in the, in the process of the whole thing. Pleased to be here and uh, feel that I've been able to bring some of my friends from Christchurch London, the church we started, you'll get to meet them as the weekend goes on as well. And uh, Matt has asked me to particularly speak on the role of the Holy Spirit in mission. And uh, so there's lots to say. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He just gets hold of us and he throws us out on mission, fills us with power, fills us with God's love, and sends us on mission. And I hope you all feel you're on mission. I hope you'll all be on mission a whole load more by the time we're done. As I've been reflecting on my own story, I've become more aware of the way the Holy Spirit has worked in it. When I was 18 years old, I'd had an encounter actually of the Holy Spirit when I was 17. I've been a believer since the age of six and three quarters. The reason I know that is because I've still got the Sunday school leaflet somewhere uh, with uh, written on the back, David Stroud, age six and three quarters. And when you're six and three quarters, it matters. So that's why I know come 17, I have a powerful experience of the Spirit. When I, In saying that, I didn't feel anything when I asked somebody to pray for me. I sat there 
Maybe you've been the same. I sat there waiting for this massive spiritual experience. The sun came out from behind the clouds and that was it. But I remember that evening, this extraordinary sense of God's closeness. And I remember the next day, before a meeting, I was sitting on my hands, alternately sitting on my hands and clock watching for the start of the meeting, thinking, when is it going to get going? And then catching myself thinking, what on earth's happened to you? You have never waited excitedly for the start of a meeting. You're normally late to meetings. But that was the beginning of a huge change for me. Worship became meaningful in a way that it hadn't been before then. I'd always thought when people said, I heard God speak to me, that they essentially meant I'd read a verse in the scriptures and it seemed apposite or relevant to me, and that's God speaking. Well, I think it is, but I realized after that that it was a whole load more than that as well. And so come a year later, I'm on a train leaving one of London's mainline stations. I've not lived in London. I wasn't raised in London. I was staying in London at the time. As I'm coming out of this station, I'm looking out over some of the housing. Needy housing representing the lives of thousands and thousands of men and women. And as I'm looking out, I have this overwhelming sense that one day I'm meant to come back to London and to start churches. Now, of course, at that minute, you don't know you're having a life-changing experience. I mean, for all you know, it could be done by Tuesday lunchtime and you've just forgotten the whole thing. But it became a life-defining thing for me. I knew, and I could never get it out of my system, I knew that I was meant to come to London. And actually on the train on the way up here, some of, uh, some of the guys I was traveling with were saying, you know, where might you go next? And I'm like, I don't think there's anywhere else for me to go. And I understand, I guess you, most of you live in cities, so you probably get this. But sometimes, some places I preach, people look at you strange. Why do you like living in a city? And I just say, I just reckon God has wired me and my wife up strangely. We like dirty air, no space, and expensive places to live. That's just, just the way it is. So 18, I have this overwhelming sense, one day we should come to London. For the next 20 years, we try and get to London, and it just doesn't work out for one reason or another. Then 20 years later, we're in Birmingham at the time and we're starting churches right across the West Midlands or right across the Midlands and Philippa's father calls us. Now he is not a believer, but on a number of occasions he's been used as a prophet in our lives. Forgive me if that messes with your theology. There was a guy called Jethro in the Old Testament. He wasn't part of the people of God. He was Moses' father-in-law. And several times he gave Moses advice which moved on God's purposes. And Peter said to us, he said, isn't it about time you guys thought about moving to London? And at the time, as an Australian friend of mine once described it, nothing was further from our mind. Some of you may live with a sense of destiny, a sense that God has something for you in the future. But the truth is, you end up with your head down and your bottom up doing whatever you're doing. Just working hard. And Peter's call was just the, just the push that we needed to start thinking about it. So we thought, okay, next Monday we'll get in a car, we'll drive to London, we'll pray and we'll see whether we feel led. So we get in the train, we have not told anyone. And most of you understand that. If Matt was to stand up and say, I'm wondering about moving, just so you know, I mean, that probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't make people feel great. 
He's not, at least as far as I know, by the way. But you know what I mean? You know, as a pastor, you just can't say that sort of thing. So we didn't tell anyone at all. We get in the car, we're driving down to London, and we get a text message from a lady who, unbeknownst to us, prays for us every Monday morning. The text message says, you're like a plant that has outgrown its pot, it's time to be replanted. So we're like, wow. I mean, that is relevant of today of all days as we're coming down to London. What I didn't know is that the coming Sunday when we were at church, she's a Dutch lady, she doesn't mind her P's and Q's, she came up to me, she wagged her finger in my face, and she said, God's told me you're leaving this church. <laughs> now, I suspect that on many occasions, people in my churches have wanted to say that to me, but no one ever had before. She said, God's told me you're leaving this church, and my job is to pray so that the church will be ready when, when they hear. So you have to understand, I'm profoundly grateful that men and women hear the voice of God today. Because if the text message was like a jab in the ribs, this was like God himself leaning out of heaven with the loudspeaker and, you know, booming down at us. We're obviously thick. We need more than most people get most of the time. So we think, great, we start making plans. Then I call a buddy of mine who's a pastor in London. I say, hi, we're coming to London. We're going to start a church, a new church, right in the center. If you know the travel system in London, right in zone one. His response, he said, you're mad. He said, that is impossible. Don't do it. I said, why is it impossible? He said, do you understand how much things cost there? And I said, quite genuinely, no, I've got absolutely no idea. And that was the grace of God to me that I didn't know. If I did, I probably wouldn't have gone any further. But I'm also profoundly grateful for the gift of faith. And God sometimes gives us the gift of faith. It's not anything you can conjure up. It's nothing that you can make happen. I just knew that I knew we were meant to do it. That was all there was to it. So his advice, forget the whole thing, was like water off a duck's back. We made plans. We put our house on the market. And then a friend of mine called me one day, a pastor friend. And he said, David, he said, there's someone in my church who's heard what you're planning to do, he's a businessman, he'd like to help you. How much do you need? Well, I'd never been asked this question before. But I knew that we wanted to start in Covent Garden, and I'd also found that if you're talking large sums of money, you're better telling them really quickly. Just It sounds better that way. So I just blurted out, I said, 50,000 pounds. But I think that would really help us get going. Oh, followed by silence. Uh, he was thinking of rather more than that. So the way that we got a church started in Zone 1 in central London was because a man I'd never met wrote me a cheque for £100,000. So you see, we should be pretty reliant on the Holy Spirit when it comes to mission. Because he does things we can't do. You know when God is in it, when he asks you to do something that you think is simply impossible. I mean, can I just suggest now, why do things that you think are possible? Everybody else in Leeds can do that. You know, there were three reasons why people said of the people of God in the scriptures, God is with them. The main one was, 
because they did things that everybody else considered were impossible. So can I suggest, even before we really get to know each other, that you spend your life doing things that are totally beyond your reach to do? Now, of course, you can't just do anything. I mean, if I tried to paint tonight, you would have all regretted it. What you have to do is you have to find what God has made you to do. And then you do that for the rest of your life. Happy is the man or woman who finds out what God's made for them to do and does it. So we're going to talk about mission. One way of describing mission is inviting men and women to change the story that they're living. We all live a story, whether we know it or not. Most of us don't know we live a story because it's a bit like asking a fish in water, what's water? fish doesn't know anything else, so it sort of can't see it. But we all live a story. And for most people, their stories are broke. They're they're not working. And God has given us a wonderful story, and we'll just sketch it out in about four, you know, in about ten minutes. It'll take about ten minutes. God has given us a wonderful story. And essentially, your and my job is to invite people to step into that story. Because God has both set the story and then he asks us to come and improvise in it. Do we have any actors here tonight? All right, well, there is a one or two sort of not quite sure or what are you going to ask me to do if I admit that I'm an actor. One of the, um, one of the sort of you know, cool and trendy things for actors these days is impro acting. In other words, you make it up as you go along. Well, God invites you and I to a degree of improvisation. He gives us a story, his big story, and then he says, now, come on, come and play your part. And that's how we live impossible lives, by working out that part and then playing it. So what is this story? What is this story? Well, it starts, of course, at the beginning of the book he's given us. It's curious the way that we read the Bible, isn't it? I mean, is there any other book where you start by opening it in the middle and reading a couple of random paragraphs? But that is typically how we read the scriptures. My question is this. How are you meant to know what the paragraphs mean if you've not read the whole thing first? How can you possibly put them in context? So you have to understand the beginning to the end and then all the paragraphs start jumping out and in multicolor or technicolor. So it starts by God creating this beautiful world for you and I to live in and then he gives mankind a purpose. There's two things men and women need. We need a purpose, we need a reason to live, and we need love. And if you stop having either of those, you literally start dying. People in Auschwitz, those who survived were those who had something to hope for, something to live for beyond the camp. Children put in sterile hospitals where mothers were not allowed in, and and nurses were told, all you need is to keep the place clean, then they'll get better. Literally, they died because they didn't have love. Love and meaning, that's what you need. God gives them both to us in the first chapter of the Scriptures. What's the meaning he gives us? He says this to us. He says, fill the earth. You can slip the first slide up, if you like. Thank you. He says, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. Now, historically, the Christian church has interpreted filling the earth as essentially having babies. Well, if that's the case, we've done pretty well, because there's now about 7 billion men and women on earth. But it's not just that. Because if you start having children, then other things follow. 
you need to start to get them around. In other words, you have to create transport systems. Then you find they need to communicate with one another. So you have to create languages. And once you've got a spoken language, you want to write it down. And once you've got a written language, you find that there's some charm and delight in telling stories. And then somebody wants to put that story on a stage and make it entertainment. And then you start to have not just transport and language, but you have theatre. And then you have film. And then you start to realize you need an economy to run things with. And so people develop economics. And the earth starts to get filled, not just with children and men and women, but with culture as well. And I want to suggest that first charge for us in terms of purpose is fill the earth with culture that brings glory to God. In other words, the sort of culture where people look and say, that is wonderful, or it has something behind it. It must have something behind it. There was a a groundbreaking philosophical book written several years ago by a Canadian philosopher. He said, we now live in the age of doubt. He said, just about everyone who doesn't believe in God doubts their lack of belief from time to time. And it's at times when they hear a great symphony or where a baby is born or where they see an incredible piece of art and they look at it and they think, is there really nothing behind that? So our job is to fill the earth with culture. And that's, the, that's, our pur- that's our purpose, culture that brings glory to God. But it's not just that's what gives us meaning to live out that way, but then we also need love. And we read that Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. And it's likely that that happened every day. Have you ever thought what that must have been like? I mean, they're naked, which is an illust- which is. Uh, a sign of their transparency, of their relationship. This is a God of love. So when Paul writes millennia later about the love of God poured out into his heart, it's not the first time anyone experienced that. That must have been Adam and Eve's daily experience of communion and intimacy with the Father, is love poured out. So they're walking with him and they're getting their socks loved off. And at the same time, they're going to be talking to him, aren't they? They're going to be saying, Father, you've given us a rather big job to do here. Rule over the fish, the sea, the birds of the air, every living creature. How do we do it? How do we do this? How do we do the other? So as they're walking with him, they're both getting love, filled with love, and they're getting equipped for their task. And the description is, in Genesis 3, verse 8, that God walks with them in the cool of the day. That's how it's translated in the NIV. But a number of theologians will want to point out that actually the word for the cool of the day is the word spirit, ruah, which is used for the spirit of God. And And a number of Bible commentators will say it's got nothing to do with the time of the day. It's actually got everything to do with the manner in which God reveals himself. In other words, God reveals himself by the spirit. Our theme for this weekend. So we've got a mission, fill the earth with the glory of God. And we do it by communing with God by the Spirit so that we get filled with love and equipped to do the task that's at hand. It's all there, just in those first couple of chapters. So that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story is it all goes wrong. You know the story, Adam and Eve, they take the apple. What's interesting about it 
is it doesn't just fracture man and women's relationship with God. They no longer walk with him in the cool of the day. Now they're thrown out of the garden and there's an angel there not allowing them into the presence of God. And that's the case for Leeds, London. The majority of men and women in this nation is they can't get in for that relationship right now. But it's not just that. It's the start of every war imaginable. Gender, gender wars, class wars, postcode wars, every sort of war possible because it's not just now my relationship with God, but it's my relationship with you. And we fall out with each other. And then you say, it's not just that, it's the very creation itself. Every natural disaster, when I turn on the radio or television, a tsunami, an earthquake, 100 people dead, thousands of people dead, it's all because of Genesis 3, because Adam and Eve took an apple and it affected the whole cosmos. The economic recession we're in now is a sign of the fallenness of the earth. That's chapter 2 of the big story we invite others into. Chapter 3. To sum it up, Colossians 1 verse 16, Paul said, Jesus dies to reconcile all things to Christ. In other words, he dies not just to reconcile you and I, though it's the high point of creation. That is the, uh, that's the uh, high point, the fulcrum of his focus. But it's also to mend creation, to mend relationships, to mend economies, to make art and culture that is God-filled again. He makes it all possible. And so he redeems it all. But he says the ultimate fullness of that is still to come. And that is where we now live. We live at a point where redemption at every level is now possible, but waiting for it to come in its fullness. And it is to come when Jesus returns and then heaven comes to earth. We don't go to heaven, but heaven comes to earth and God makes it all new again. When Paul in Thessalonians writes and says, we shall meet him in the air, the Thessalonians would have understood. Any Roman colony, if Caesar was coming to them, would go out to Caesar, they'd meet him as any good host would, they assumed, and then bring Caesar back to Thessalonica. That's the imagery Paul's using. He said, you'd meet him in the air and then you'll bring him back and this whole thing will be made new again. And that is the story. Now, we are caught between the cross and the restoration. And you know what that age is called in Scripture between cross and restoration? It's called the age of the Spirit. It's the time when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And so when Jesus says, Jesus has two big commands for us and they straddle both ends of Matthew's Gospel. The first, be salt and light. Keep doing the ruling, subduing, creating, cultivating. And then Matthew 28, go and make disciples, for I will be with you. I will be with you by the Spirit. And so that's the story, that's the invitation that God makes for us. And so I want to look particularly at this whole question of how it is that we get empowered by the Spirit. And that we get empowered by the Spirit for whatever it is that we're doing. And of course, for all, sometimes I've summed it up like this, that the call for all of us coming out of this story is firstly 
to make your world a better place. That's what it means to be salt and light. Make your world a better place. And secondly, introduce men and women to Christ. Make disciples. And so those are, those are the two elements. So how do we do that and allow the Spirit to empower us? And what, what role does the Spirit have in the whole thing, in this new age of the Spirit? Well, what Paul anticipates firstly is that you and I will get full of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about you and I being a temple of the Spirit. And I trust that he will do that for many of us this weekend. But secondly, he expects us corporately together to get full of the Spirit. So it's not just an individual thing. In fact, in, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about, he said, don't you know you're the temple of the Spirit? Don't you know altogether? Mosaic Church and your three sites and visitors, friends here. Don't you know you're the Spirit together? And then he says, and you as individuals are the temple of the Spirit. And he anticipates that we will both get filled up, but then it will overflow into the world. I wonder whether we can just put up that verse from Ezekiel. Just have to skip a couple of slides. Here's what Ezekiel says for seeing this. He says, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. And their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they'll bear, because the water from the sanctuary, the water out of the temple, out of you, will flow to them. And their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Ezekiel's vision is the spirit which fills us up, then pours out into leaves, providing food and healing. Who knows that this city could do with more food and more healing? And so we get full of the Spirit, and then it flows out of us as a result. So we get the Spirit, of course, when we come to Christ. Paul makes that very clear when he writes to the Romans. He said, if you haven't got the Spirit of God in you, then you don't belong to Christ. You're not a child of Christ. But just because we've received the Spirit doesn't mean that that is all there is to it. If you just trace through some of the disciples in the book of Acts, you notice they obviously leak. Because they keep needing more. Think of Peter. Peter at Pentecost. He gets full of the Spirit. Tongues of fire. And speaks in, in other languages. But then only three, two chapters later, he's up before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, and it says, Peter standing filled with the Holy Spirit. So he gets filled again. He's got a particular job to do, so he gets filled. Then at the end of chapter 4, having been flogged, I would have thought when you get flogged, you might lose a bit of the Spirit at that point in time. So then he gets back with the other disciples and they pray. And it says that as they pray, the building is shaken and they're all filled with the Spirit. So Peter, three times in two chapters, gets filled with the Spirit. I want to suggest if that's good enough for Peter, it might be good enough for you and I. That you and I might need that as well. And Paul, I think, anticipating maybe our hesitation at times, he writes to the Ephesians and he says, listen, Ephesians, do not get drunk with wine. Instead, go on being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Not just once, not just a couple of times. He said, just make that part of the way that you live life. To go on being filled with the Spirit. So what does that, what does that provide for us? I mean, what happens when the Spirit fills us? And for some of us, and sometimes that's a, 
powerful crisis-like experience. For other times, it's almost an imperceptible development as a bath sort of slowly fills with water. I don't think it really matters which as long as we get full. But what, what are the results of that? Well, I, first thing is that it gives us intimacy with the Father. We're made for intimacy. We crave love. If I had time, we'd sketch the breakdown of firstly the extended family over the last hundred years. For most of history, most of the world has lived in extended family units. But since the Industrial Revolution, people have moved for work. As we were coming up on the train, we were swapping our family histories. And just as, you know, random six of us, we've got families all over the world. And that is, of course, how it is now. The extended family split, but now the nuclear family is also being broken down. You know, the, uh, the um, family breakdown has increased 400% in the last 60 years, in numerical terms. But actually, of course, fewer and fewer people have been getting married during that time as well. Now, in a sense, I don't need to tell you guys stats, because some of you... You would say, I carry the scars on my body. And actually, even for those relatively few of us who come from secure family backgrounds, it still it affects now the whole ethos of the way one trusts in relationships, the longevity one expects from relationships, and so on and so forth. So when Paul writes, as he does in Romans, next slide please, then we understand the importance of it. When he says, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies with our spirit that now we are God's children. The spirit gives intimacy and gives healing. And if ever there's a generation that needs intimacy and needs healing, I want to suggest it's this generation. And when you get, when you fall in love and receive love like that, you can't hide it, can you? Everyone knows about it. The people who sit next to you at work or college, they know about it. Because love does that. But it's the same with the Holy Spirit. Let me just read you this account of a young New York lawyer who thought, I am going to sort things out with God and went for a walk in the woods. Here's what he said. He said, the Holy Spirit seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. These waves came over me and over me and over me, one after the other, until I recollect I cried out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. That man's name was Charles Finney. He became, as a result of that experience, a leader in his generation. Not just a preacher where it was said that when he went to preach in some New England towns, the population of the town increased by two-thirds as people flooded in. And on occasions, the uh, population increased by two-thirds and the crime rate, crime rate dropped by two-thirds, as Charles Finney preached. But he also argued for the liberation of women and for civil rights, and he opened the, one of the first colleges which educated men and women black and white, as well as getting a lot of black slaves out of some of the southern states up to the northern half of the states and into Canada as well. But he would say it came from an experience of the Spirit of God, of waves of liquid love. 
Not only does it give us intimacy, though, but it makes us distinct. See, if we're going to, if we're going to give ourselves to our cities, and the way we sum up our mission in London is that we're wanting to work for the social, cultural, and spiritual renewal of our city. But if you start giving yourself to the city, one of the questions people sometimes ask is, what's going to make us distinct? If as Christ followers we should stand out, what's going to do that? I want to suggest that the first thing that should do that is the fact that the Spirit is on us. And people might not be able to say what's different, but they'll feel it. Years ago now, when Matt and Piff and Philip and I were working together, I remember one a professional woman just walking in through our back door of our house. And she was a spiritual woman, but she wasn't a Christian. And she walked in, as she came to the kitchen, she said, ooh, she said, I like the vibes in this house. Now, she didn't have the language for the Holy Spirit, but she felt something distinctly different. Maybe we can just have the next verse up. This is Moses' cry. Moses saying to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up. How will people know you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the faces of the earth? But you see, if we can learn to carry the Spirit, then people will realize that we're different. We had uh, a couple of years ago now, one sister uh, came on our Alpha course and came to Christ and would tell her other sister about it and would invite her new friends from church back for lunch or uh, for just to hang out. And Lucy, younger sister, it just made her mad. She was convinced the older sister had got involved in a cult and used to like arguing with all her friends. And of course, friends said, well, why didn't you come one time? It's not a cult, at least not as far as we know, so come. I'm joking. Just realized we don't know each other too well. So one day Lucy comes, and at the end of it they say, so what did you think? She said, didn't like it at all. She said, I'm sure it's a cult. She said, I don't understand why I wept the whole way through the worship. But she said, I didn't like it. And so she started coming most weeks. And most weeks she'd weep her way through the worship, but not like the whole thing. But obviously at some subliminal level, there was something that was bringing her back. And then one week, one of her friends who was actually working with the children that Sunday felt an inner prompting to go and to offer to pray for her. She came in and she said to Lucy, she said, Lucy, would you mind if I prayed for you? She said, can if you want. It won't make any difference at all. Which, and at Lucy's baptism, she said that the experience that I then had, she said, was a hundred times better than my best drug experience. As the love of God poured into her life. Now, Lucy wasn't the sort who wanted loads of apologetics. Her big question was not, why has my life been so difficult or why has there been so much suffering in my family? Though that's a very legitimate question and lots of people need answers. Lucy didn't. She needed liquid love poured into her life. I want to suggest, Mosaic Leads, carry the Spirit with you wherever you go. There'll be one of, there's three things that should make us stand out. Very quickly. Number one is the presence of the Spirit. Number two is the fact that you and I live more sacrificially and love more sacrificially than anyone else because of the cross. And the third is because there's content. There's, uh, there's love which doesn't demand performance. It's called grace.
So it's an understanding of the gospel which leads to a gracious attitude. It's a sacrificial attitude. We become, as one leader calls it, the MPVs of the city, the most valuable people, because we lay down our lives for others and because of the presence of the Spirit. So it's love, it's distinction that we are distinct from others. And thirdly, it's just, it's power. It's power for service. Who feels sometimes like they could do with a bit more power to be able to serve God? I remember going to a conference years ago now at a famous London church. Pretty much everybody here will have heard of it. And during the, at the end of the worship time, people were invited forward for prayer if they felt they had the gift of sharing the gospel with others. Everyone went forward. They were prayed for. Then everyone went back to their seats apart from one person who lay face down at the front for the whole of the sermon and for a considerable amount of time afterwards. That individual's name was Nicky Gumbel. Uh, a while ago now, there was an article in The Spectator which suggested that Nicky Gumbel has now preached the gospel to more, men, to more English men and women than anyone since the time of John Wesley. Do you think he got some power then? And that's what the Lord gives us. He gives us power for service. Here's how D.L. Moody described it. D.L. Moody was asked, was pestered. He led a big church in uh, Chicago, but he was pestered by two women who kept saying to him, uh, Dwight, you need to ask the Lord for more of the Holy Spirit. And so in the end, he asked, and here's what happened. He says, one day, I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. The sermons were not different. Just flip over, thanks. I didn't present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would now not be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. I love that. The sermons were no different. But many came to Christ as a result. And so I want to just present to you, tomorrow we'll get into lots of really practical training, lots of time for Q&A and modeling and all sorts of things that we'll do. Tonight I just want to get us going by just presenting the Holy Spirit to you. Saying we've been given this wonderful mission for the purpose and love here is the member of the Trinity who's been sent to equip us for that. When we get full, something normally happens to our mouths. We either worship, declare what God is saying, or share it with other people. But something happens with our mouths. So how do we receive more of the Spirit? Let me just give you four very straightforward, very easy things which may help you, but it may help you help others as well. Here's the four things which I often share with people. Number one, I ask people, are you thirsty for more of the Holy Spirit? Jesus stood up and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And there is a very simple equation when it comes to the presence of the Holy Spirit. You get as much as you want. You get as much as you want. It's true for a lot of things in life, actually. But if you're sort of not bothered, then, you know, that's fine. But if you are absolutely desperate for more of him, you will get it. You may not get it the next minute or even the next five minutes, but you can rest assured. You know that wonderful song, uh, 
that we sang at the end, the Christy Knockers one, I will wait for you. It's perfect of the way that we should act with the Holy Spirit. The psalmist is full of patient, faith-filled waiting. Sometimes we have to wait. But my first question to you is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for more with him? Secondly, is Jesus Lord of your life and are you living a holy lifestyle? By which I'm not saying, are you perfect? Because clearly we'd all be opting out of this at this point in time. What I'm just saying is, make sure there's, no hidden, there's nothing hidden in your life. That everything, as far as you know, is under the Lordship of Christ. And where it's not, that you're open about it with those that matter to you and who you know can help you. Thirdly, do you believe that you'll receive if you ask? Do you believe you'll receive? Jesus said this, If you who are fathers, evil as you are, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? I remember sitting with a friend of mine once, his name was James, and we were talking about asking the Lord for more of the Spirit. I said to James, James, if we ask now, will you get? He said, I don't know. And so we opened this scripture together, and we read it together. Whosoever asks. And then I said to James again, I said, James, do you qualify as one who asks? He never answered me. He just started shaking in the seat next to me as he received the Holy Spirit. So if you ask, will you get? And sometimes there's times where I will send people to us, I go and read the scriptures till you come to a point of quiet confidence. Fourthly, receive the Spirit. Sometimes we need to do that and it's like taking a gift from the Lord. And you take it and you hold it and you'll find he'll bless you as a result. So that's as simple as that. That's all I really want to share tonight is here's the Holy Spirit and then we're going to have an opportunity to pray together, see what the Lord wants to do. Let me say a couple of things though before we pray together. And the first thing is this. There are two ways of coming before the Lord to pray, both of which are biblical and thoroughly appropriate. One is what we were doing earlier in terms of interceding. It's a bit like the woman who was bleeding, who the, the doctors had not been able to help. And she was like, if I can get to Jesus, I'll be healed. So she pushes her way in. And that's good and right. But there's another way too. And it's the way that Jesus often operated when he said, I only do what I saw the Father doing. He said, I can do nothing by myself. And this is confident waiting. Who knows that you cannot make the Holy Spirit do anything? And yet, so much of the time we try. Have you noticed? You know, you get to pray and you get... And they're sort of trying hard or they put on their holy spiritual face or whatever it is. You just can't do anything. So how's about we make an agreement right at the beginning of this weekend? None of us will try. I mean, doesn't that make sense? You know, if it's God, then fine. And if it's not, I'd rather not be involved. I don't know about you. I sort of don't like made-up religion. I've just got this dislike for the whole thing. The authentic thing, I'll be there. Anything else, I'd just rather leave alone. So why don't we do that? No trying. No making it up. Don't shake unless you have to. 
If you have to, you're welcome. No problems at all. But just let the Lord be the Lord. And I think that's cool. I also think that the Father's always working and he's always speaking. There's a wonderful story which illustrates this of a farmer who went home one night. And he sat down at the table and he said to his family, he said, I've had a bad day today. I've managed to lose the family heirloom watch. An old watch that went tick-tock, tick-tock. Some of you will have heard this story. His son said, Dad, where did you lose it? He said, I dropped it somewhere in the haystack, but who knows where, I just can't find it. His son said, don't worry, Dad, I, I know where it is, I can find it. His son ran out to the haystack and he went right on top of the haystack. And then he lay down on the haystack and he quietened himself. And he quietened himself to listen. And then he quietened himself some more. And again. And finally, he could hear very quietly but distinctly, tick, tock, tick, tock. He thought, I knew it was here. Now he thinks, now where is it? And so he now quietens himself all the more. And eventually he gets off the haystack, he goes round to the side, he puts his hand in, and he draws out the watch. I think it's a wonderful example of hearing the voice of the Lord. He's speaking the whole time. But most of the time, we just don't quieten ourselves enough to hear him. So in a minute we're going to pray. My encouragement to you is that we just quiet, we're just going to quieten ourselves and we're going to wait. <laughs> and if it's of any help, I haven't got the first idea what's going to happen. But we're just going to wait and let the Lord be the Lord. And he knows about our heart for mission. And he cares much more about mission than we do. And so we'll wait. I once said to a friend of mine, I said, uh, who's, who the Lord has used in some remarkable ways in terms of moving in the power of the Spirit. I said, how long should we wait? He said, I don't know. He said, it's hard to say. Longer than you feel comfortable, he said. <laughs> So with that, as my final words of encouragement and exhortation, let's just, uh, let's just pray, shall we? And you can just slip your notebooks down and let's just wait before the Lord and see what he wants to do. Heavenly Father, we, we love you. We love you so much. And we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you for your presence. And we want to invite you, Holy Spirit of God. And invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to rest upon us now. Come, Holy Spirit, upon your church. We're here, Father, for you. We lay before you our gifts and our passions. We lay before you our lack of knowing what we should be doing and where we should be going. We just lay it all before you. And we just ask that you would have your way and be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Now let's just wait. Let's just wait. And just wait for him. Thank you, Father. Lord, we love you. And we love the fact that you build your church by giving gifts to men. Oh, it's an extraordinary thing that you want to give gifts to men. But we thank you for it. And I want to pray, Father, that over this weekend there would be just a wonderful sense of liberty and freedom that we would find personal liberty and freedom that would be increasingly reflected amongst us as a body as well. We love you, our King and our God. Honor you. Thank you for your presence. Well, just keep praying for people, but just ask the guys whether they'll lead us in a song of worship. You can stand if you like or just sit and sing. But the psalmist says that the present that God dwells amongst the praises of his people. So one of the ways which we welcome and, and host God's presence is through our worship and through worshiping hearts. Holy Spirit is incredibly sensitive. It's why he's likened to a dove in the scriptures. And essentially, where he's welcomed, he comes quickly. And where we don't want him, he tends not to come. And so, we're not going to uh, protract things tonight. So, I think, you know, this will be one song and we'll be done for this evening. But let's use it as an opportunity just to say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And Holy Spirit, you're welcome here all day tomorrow. And you're welcome in my heart and you're welcome in my life. Some of you, you may be saying, Holy Spirit, give me a dream tonight. Speak to me through dreams and visions. Whatever it is. Let's, uh, let's sing together.